This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today it's just me and JP. We are rounding out 2023, which has been, for me anyways, a fantastic year. JP, how's your year been? Pretty good. Um, I think at home and at work, it's been a year of significant growth and I've had a lot of fun, worked really hard. I, uh, I can look back on it happily. Now you are now in going, you're in fifth year, right? Fifth year? Yes. Halfway through PGY5. So you're pretty soon going to be a year away from graduating. That's very exciting. It's surreal. Um, I was just talking about this with some of the guys at work the other day, how uh, the days are very, very long, but then the years are quite short when you look back. And that's very true. I, I definitely don't feel, quote unquote, like a senior resident in my bones. But then when I'm actually doing things at work and they're going well and I know what to do and I can execute it, it's kind of like, oh, I've learned something, I guess. Yeah, it's amazing, right? I mean, it, you build upon a base and it's like in a couple of years, I really get incredibly confident phenomenal can't wait to see you operating in person again sometimes soon i think but um you know we're we're back at the end of another year and this is going to be our fourth year coming in and i have to say you know reflecting back the the listenership has been absolutely amazing yet again in 2023 um we are fast on the trails of 1 million listens which i think i mean let's be honest like we don't really advertise this we don't try to get patients to listen um, it's really just such an accomplishment. I, I really owe that to your, your work in the back end, audio editing, finding guests, doing the shows on your own really has been the driver here. So 2023, I think really, JP, uh, you especially have done a good job. Well, I, as always, I will push back on that, but, but you know, it's, it's a team effort. And for all time and all of history, the show was your idea. And uh, the first season, every single guest that we had was completely you making phone calls, sending emails, and built on your name. So uh, thank you for continuing to do this with me. It's been a great way to keep in touch and keep working with you, even from afar. Yeah, yeah. And thanks to our guests and our listeners. And I do want to reflect back on 2023. Uh, you know, it, it has been a really interesting year, I think, for the practicing neurosurgeons out there. To me, 2023 meant a lot of things. and. Um, one, perhaps one of the biggest was really the change in, in third-party payers and insurance companies. Um, this may be a prelude, and, and I like that we just had um, you know, a guest on talking about what's coming, advocacy, so important. And to me, it was really the razor's edge at rehab discharge that you know, United, uh, Anthem, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, all these big uh, insurance companies, AvMed. They made so much in terms of profit margin during COVID that 2023, they really put the, the lockdown. And I think the, the place where I saw it the most, of course, getting insurance off for surgery has always been an issue. Getting people to rehab. We just can't get anybody to rehab. I have a patient in the hospital in there two weeks inpatient waiting for her rehab authorization. This is, you see that at Rush too? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, since the day I started work, you know, Dispo is always a nightmare, but it's been getting worse and worse. And not just um, with a specific patient, but across the hospital, there, there's still shortages in personnel. 
Um, in every department, ever since COVID, there's shortages in nursing. We're still facing shortages in anesthesia. And I, I think, um, not just from the insurance and the payment side, but I think that the rehab facilities are also facing personnel shortages, which means that even if you get the insurance approval, they may not have a bed or they may not have staff to cover those beds. And so, you know, getting people who need the rehab, I, I always kind of flippantly, but I frequently say for spine people that the surgery just enables the rehab and that's how you really get better. And so delaying people getting to that next and important phase of their improvement and their care is really frustrating for them, really frustrating for us as the people taking care of them. Um, I will say, Dr. Wang, another thing looking back at 2023, though, uh, you know, you completed your MBA this year and look at you, the, the first thing coming out of the gate, you're thinking about uh, insurance authorization, this financial side, this systems level approach. So congrats. And let's put a capstone on the fact that you completed that degree this year. Um, and I think it's already affecting the way that you're looking at your work. Have you noticed a, a change in what you notice on the job and, and how your mind is working now that you've gone through that coursework and finished that degree? Yeah, it's very interesting, JP. I'm glad you brought that up because the MBA I did was very much based on data analysis and processes. And uh, and my favorite class was math programming about linear algebra. And and now I look at the R totally differently. And I don't want to say I've made it even more efficient. Yeah, pretty damn efficient with the help of my staff and all that. And I shouldn't say my staff, Miami staff, me. But, but it, it really makes me think about it a lot. And going back to this rehab issue, you know, it's funny because I think the four major power centers in healthcare, what are they? Insurers, right? Insurers and Medicare. Um, hospitals, nurses, and uh, pharma med device, right? So in other words, doctors, mm -hmm. surgeons, physicians, we don't really have any real the real And that's, that's late. This whole thing about this discharge to rehab is very interesting because to me, whether a patient goes to rehab on day three or day 20, I mean, honestly, it doesn't make a big difference to me other than I have to round on them and have complications in the hospital because they're there too long. It could affect my stats. And of course, my statistics look bad to insurance companies, right? Right. But in reality, for the patient, like I get to see them more, I get to take care of them. Um, and it really pits insurance companies against and this I, i'm very excited <laughs> maybe cruelly delicious to look at how this plays out because you know physicians have been the butt end most health certainly has not been um and i apologize if that that's any nurses out really it's doctors getting 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 ground down and one of my junior partners think what's going to happen because we're just getting paid less every not just by inflation, but actually less. And, you know, our costs are going up. Are we getting destroyed? I'm like, we have to be efficient, right? But I, I'm, I'm wondering, do you see that in your group at Rush? Because to me, this is so, so important in terms of what's going to happen. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm very far removed, I think, from that level of the lived experience and decision-making of my attendings. I, you know, I show up, I do cases, I operate all day. Um, and I don't really know how they're feeling it financially. Um, they're all hospital employed. I think it's an RVU-based system for bonuses, but they're salaried. Um, I think that our volumes are slowly getting back to where they were before COVID. And that might be 
some reflection of uh, getting insurance approval for elective surgeries from clinic. But I'll just be honest with you. I don't really know how things look on the financial or, or business side where I work. Um, I do find it interesting, though, that as you mentioned, um, with your patients stuck in the hospital waiting to get to rehab, that just means you have to round on them more. And that actually reminds me of our New Year's resolutions from last year. And so I want to ask and, and, and see if we were both successful or maybe less successful in achieving these. And I went back and I listened to our New Year's episode from last year, Dr. Wang, and we both declared some resolutions for 2023. And I want to put the question to you. Your resolution was that you were going to transition away from what you called resident style rounding in and out, make sure the people are alive and try to do some attending rounds. You, you talked about, you know, asking some questions of the team, maybe a little uh, gentle pimping, spending more time with the patients and trying to teach and doing like teaching rounds. Um, how did that pan out? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm happy and upset that you bring that up because <laughs> I, I I would tell you I failed miserably. In fact, I've now evolved to a methodology where I round alone, mm. um, and I don't even round with my the nurse practitioner. I actually round alone, hmm. um, and in some ways it has made me closer to my patients because it's not like I walk in with a room of I'm sorry, with a group of people. And so the patients are less intimidated, but also I have to know everything before I go in there. Not like I can right. turn to somebody and say, what's the hematic? And by and large, I try to round alone. Um, you, you're probably going to ask me why, right? But I, I don't want to get to that just yet. But okay. you know, if, if the resident or a resident or whatever waiting specifically because they need to ask me something, I'll let kind of go with them. But I actually don't round like a private practice. And you know, um, most, most of our attendings at Rush do the same thing. Uh, we find out our junior residents will find out later, either through updates or addenda on a note or some orders being put in. We'll find out that the attending has rounded, but they're like ninjas. We never see them. Yeah, I can tell you I'm not happy about it because it was a, it was a New Year's resolution of mine in 2022. And I thought, wow, I need to be more like the senior doctor on a market website. But it is purely because um, I found that they don't have any time. Mm. They're so busy trying to deal with so much that to round with me for 30 minutes or whatever it's going to be, I, you know, I'm pulling them away from getting work done, which, which is overly, what do you say, overly service-oriented and not in the service of education. Yeah. And you know, I, as I told you, my, my memory isn't this crystal. I went back and listened to our New Year's conversation last night. You actually mentioned that as a concern when you said, I'm going to try to do attending rounds and teaching rounds, ask some questions. And even as you were making the resolution, you said, and you know, it might not work out because I, I already feel like even quick rounds, I'm taking the juniors away from running the service and they're so busy, that might be a real detriment to their day on the job. So it's interesting that that concern of yours not only manifested, but it, it's, I guess, getting worse for the junior residents. Well, on the other hand, right, like, like by the way, thank you, you texted me this beautiful uh, image of a surgery you did on Christmas Eve, right? On Christmas Day, I'm sorry, right? Oh, Christmas Eve. 
Christmas Eve. So you missed your Christmas Eve to do this surgery, right? Happy to do it. Yeah. And I don't think that everybody understands what that means. Like you to come away from what you're doing, take care of someone in need, probably uninsured and by many people might be a, a less contributory member of society or whatever. I hate to say that because it implies that we care about that. We don't, right? That yeah. you do that. And it's not to come in and take care of, you know, professional athlete or politician you're coming in to take care of another human soul who most people probably step over um as they go to grocery and and i'm saying that emphatically because it really speaks to what you do um you know i find that our junior residents they they their their action in times they're saving like literally i don't want to say every but yeah maybe every week there is a situation where their action at the moment, their decision saved essentially life, limb, or vision, or paralysis. And then to take that away from them so they could walk around with things like more important. I think I think that's a mistake, but I don't know the answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I will also highlight that one of my favorite things about your group at the University of Miami is not just how dedicated and busy and always available the junior residents are, but you and your partners really model that. It, it always astounded me and impressed me that, again, the, the class of people you're talking about, like, like my patient, that many in society would look past or step over, when those people come into Jackson Memorial or Ryder Trauma Center after an injury, they're getting Mike Wang on call. They're getting Alan Levy. They're they're getting some of the biggest names and luminaries in neurosurgery in the country or the world who are on call for trauma, general neurosurgery, uh, spine injuries, head trauma, just like every other neurosurgeon in the country. And that always really amazed me that um, these people who have unfortunate injuries are brought to your hospital and they're getting, you know, the the big name heads of department uh, are coming in and taking care of this, just like your junior partners do. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. JP. Like you think about like Rick Komatar, you know, coming in and doing shunts all the time, right? right. subdural. And uh, you know, and, and of course the, the people that aren't as well known, they, they will be very well known today, but yeah, Jacques Marcos who left us always came in and Steve Abla who's replaced him now here at UM. They're coming in and doing the, I don't want to say mundane, they're important cases, right? Not just dancing. Right. And so and so I think not just teaching your residents decision making, teaching them how to do the surgeries, but modeling that philosophy and that dedication to caring for people um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year is a core part of your role as they're attending. And so when you ask how you know how you can answer that question of taking their time for the teaching rounds, there's got to be a balance, because I think the opportunity for the residents to round with you, see how you interact with your patients, just like I used to in your clinic, is extraordinarily beneficial. So may, I, I don't know, maybe one day a month or something, one day a week, um, try to walk around with them so they can see, and just like you model coming in at two in the morning, model for them the way you interact with the patient in the room may be beneficial, even though, as you say, they're, they're swamped with busy work. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting you bring that up. And I'll tell you that we have been so busy um, because of a lot of factors. 
you know, like I'm thinking about like during COVID how is and now that has just uh, gone off chain. I mean, it's it, it's a um, it's an embarrassment of riches, you know, and it's it, it is something that I think that you helped me discuss in a very academic sense, right? About a half a decade ago, you wrote a paper uh, with, I mean, you wrote it essentially, Greg Basil, about the farmer hunting spine surgery. It is it is still the paper that is that I get the most involved about. Maybe for our audience, you could sort of bring attention to that. If, I don't know if you have the ready reference. Uh, I, I do. It's, it's something I think about often. And um, if if I recall correctly, I opened that paper with a parable that that I that I just I made up a parable. And for some reason, I'll never understand. You let me keep that in a paper and now it's published. But um, it's this philosophy from the business world and the finance world that actually Greg Basil uh brought to me this uh, analogy, I guess, that I think perfectly applied to your practice and the the philosophy and approach to spine surgery in particular that you took and have inculcated in me. But it's these two paradigms, the farmer and the hunter, and the hunter is looking for the big kill and the farmer is nurturing things that grow slowly and bear fruit later. And so at the simplest bare bones um, way to apply this to spine surgery. If you have someone with, um, you know, some deformity and you see abnormalities at multiple levels and they have back pain, et cetera, the hunter would go straight to the T10 to pelvis, right? The, the hunter goes, let's cover every level possible. We're going to do the big case right up front. Whereas the farmer might say, you know, you have this scoliosis, you have this curve, you have degen here, there, and there, but really the reason you're in my clinic is because you have an L5 radiculopathy. I'm going to do a minimally invasive foraminotomy. We're going to see if it fixes your symptoms. And then if in two years you get a different kind of pain or you have back pain and your curve is progressing, blah, blah, then we could talk about doing more because we can always do more, but you can't take it back. And that's, we also wrote some papers around that time about the modular spine surgery approach that you're taking with the MIS techniques where you can always add on to a construct and do five small surgeries over a decade instead of one big surgery up front. And I think that's definitely a philosophy I saw built into your practice. It's a philosophy I 100% see with all of my attendings at Rush, particularly Rick Fessler, who's a huge proponent of doing focal symptom-driven decompression, even in the setting of deformity in elderly patients. Um, and I think that at least from what I saw in your clinic and, and what you've told me about your clinic and your experience, that really bears fruit, not just with a longitudinal relationship with one patient, but even if you don't offer surgery to someone up front, um, that person will refer you, friends, cousins, family members. They say, oh, I have a spine surgeon because you see them over time and you have a relationship with them. Does that sound accurate for your experience at work? Yeah, that's very accurate, and it has many dimensions to it. And just for the for the listeners, uh, draw your attention called "Farmer and the Hunter" and longitudinal philosophy of that you essentially wrote. Although Greg's the first author, uh, published in JNS Journal of Neurosurgery in Broca's area, tutorials, September sixth of twenty nineteen. It's really just two pages, so read. But you know what what's happened is you know I I found that 
probably about 55% of my girls are fathers. And Rick's yeah. best I'm sure is the same. I, I get almost nothing from, I don't want any social media, any advertising, marketing, I hate that. Probably uh, 10% from the ER and the university and that kind of university docs. Probably another 10% from referring doctors. And then um, a handful from, um, uh, like, you know, other sources. Uh, probably like, oh, direct patients. Direct patient search percent for that find mm. somewhere. Um, but but it really is about that. And I I run these huge clinics, right? Seeing six plus people a day, and people always scratch their heads. And I've been giving this talk about why spine take clinic. And really, to me, it's been like success because the patients they keep coming back. And I'm not saying they get adjacent level fees. What I'm saying is like. Lots of them are people who had been talked out of surgery um, years before. And it's not even them. It may be their mother. And there is a building of trust that you're like their back doctor, neck doctor, not just surgery, even though I surgery. And so that, that beginning of the relationship as you're there to walk this road of their entire life with is is what builds trust and i'm not saying that patients like they they may dislike but they they inherently have that understanding that i'm telling truth um that whether they agree with not some people say no no i want you to do it all or whatever do more that's fine but that'll be a conversation not the fault so that is really the source of it all and so i i found that life is so because i don't have to worry about where i don't have to worry about what i say to people I mean, they may not like it. They can write me up to the dean any day. So back away and didn't do this, that. But I'm gonna. Uh, you say truth to power, right? I just say the truth, right? As I see it, and then there's there's no psychological friction. I found that most people burn out. They have a disconnect. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about what is PTSD. It's it's not that with traumatic experience because you know lots of people go through trauma and they're fine. It's the inability to reconcile that trauma with some construct of reality, right? Like, in other words, I'm a good person. That's my construct. But I was forced to kill babies. I can't live with that reconcilable to my internal psyche. So now I have PTSD. Versus, no, 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 no. I killed a bunch of bad people. They need to die. And that was the right thing to do to save other people, right? Like, those people tend to not have the same kind of problem i'm not saying they don't ever get different and so for me i have no clinic because i just walk in there i say to people well this is what i think you may disagree with me but this is what i feel and you know if you don't agree with me we don't have to have a relationship but if you agree with me and i think i'm right then we can have a relationship for life right well let me ask you because right now if you approach that if you approach your clinic that way and you behave that way in your clinic, you have a clinic of 60, 70, 80 people. And so if you piss off and offend and drive off half of them, you've still got loads of patients. But were you always this way in your clinic, even when you were first starting out and you didn't have this huge referral base that you've cultivated over the years? If, if your clinic had five people in it, were you still exactly the same, honest, straightforward, straight up, this is what I think 
Mike Wang or when you were starting out and you were hungry for patients and needed to book cases, did you maybe sugarcoat or soften things a little bit? And then over the years, one, you became more mature, uh, more comfortable just saying what you thought. But then two, you also were a little more secure in your practice. Well, I'll tell you, I was always this way because it's my core personality, right? Big five. Yeah. Disagreeable person. So I always say what I and and it offends people sometimes. That's unfortunate, but that's my five name. But I can tell you a, a story because it matters. I think younger doctors. Um, the difference is, of course, my my uh, volume is much higher, so I have less time. But my messages are better crafted, and I've spent more time refining how I say things. How what I'm. I don't mean style, the words I use, right. Um, so they're more precise. But I remember when I was a young, young doctor, USC, Steve Giannata, chairman, sent me a patient. The patient was the person who ran the medical staff, okay, administrator mm-hmm. slash administrative. And the person had back. And the person came to see me. In, and I, at one point, laughed about something that had nothing to do with medical care or anything they did, right? But I looked pleasant, and I pleasantly laughed like you and I would, right? Right. And she stared me with this steely gaze. I'd known this here, and she said, "Can't laugh." I'm like, "Why?" She goes, "Because I'm suffering." <laughs> and I was actually a little bit taken aback. I was a little because I was young. I was just I was just not many more years older than you. Years you practice, right? Right. And I was almost horrified. I didn't understand her situation, sure, but I also didn't understand why I was getting. But now I understand. And I would do things no differently. But now I have wherewithal to understand why my spine truly, really do. I've met almost none that like I do. I love. Um, so I think for those people out there who are listening, you have to find maybe that that is higher or uh, not because you complicate. Everybody says, oh, it's because you see have complications. No, 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 no. It's way beyond. Um, and I'm talking about spine. I'm not talking about, talking about spine. People come stuff, you know, they're not dying. Stuff right? Uh, pain. And it is a very, very job. And, and I, I would love to go into detail. We don't have time to do it. But I think my new New Year's resolution, right, for 2024, is that I want to continue to deliver honestly. But I also want maybe spend that extra 10 seconds, because I've been bad about that. I, I would really go, and I don't mean 30 seconds. People have real things to solve. Sometimes I'll spend 30 minutes with one patient. I don't mean an operative. I don't mean a... Uh, I'll give you an example. I'm sorry, JP, to keep rambling on. No. There was a case I saw three weeks ago. I'm in clinic talking to a 34-year-old lady. Two big disagreements, right? And turns out she's not so bad. She's actually better, right? And I'm not... I'm not right? And I'm talking to her, but I just can't figure out what's going on with her, right? I can't figure it out. I'm like... There's like you can just walk out and say you don't need surgery. Walk out. Or you can say you need surgery, right? I'm trying to figure out the 
women. It didn't hurt that she's extremely charming and beautiful and looked Grace Kelly. Finally, it hit. I don't know why. I think it's almost like, I don't know if AI will ever have this ability. Joe Rogan talked about soul, right? Soul. My soul spoke to me. Looked at her. Because the first thing I asked her was like, um, are you here alone? I asked patients, husband or spouse or significant other around. I don't like that conversation just with her, right? And I said, I asked her, this is 24 minutes into the conversation, 24 minutes. That clinic that day had 73, and it was mm-hmm. about one o'clock, so it was the middle of the day. And I said, are you afraid to get pregnant? And oh. she just started bawling. Like, I mean, like, it was like I sprung a well. And for the next six minutes, I talked to her about how you don't get pregnant and have a worse wolf thick, right? But she wanted to have baby, her husband. And she right. couldn't I nobody nobody would say it, right? And she didn't even give me any clue, except that she was married and didn't have kids, right? That doesn't imply kids. And she left that clinic so happy that she had some kind of closure, right? But I took the extra ten minutes to and it really mattered I didn't get a surgery out of it you know it doesn't really matter but I think for the doctors listening they've all had where they they cracked some code that nobody else had got to and it really helps them you know I've said it before on this podcast and uh, my co-residents and junior residents hear me ramble about this stuff all the time at work but I truly believe that physicians in general, and in particular, I I guess, perhaps a a specialist who's in a consultant situation, we really develop this skill. Well, we should, we must, the good ones really develop this skill for something like cold reading, where you walk into a room and there's a complete stranger. And in a very, very short amount of time, you have to figure them out at a deep level in order to understand what's actually wrong with them, both, you know, the signs and symptoms, you know, like what, what is actually bothering them subjectively and then what is objectively wrong with them that could be causing that. And that means not just our ability to read them and to pick up on things, even intuitively, like it sounds like you did, but the ability to quickly, establish that rapport and that trust for the person to open up and tell us things consciously or unconsciously. That is such, I mean, you know, you could have the best hands or you could have okay technical skills, whatever, but your ability to really understand another human sitting across from you and to establish that rapport and that trust, I I think is the, the bedrock of being a successful physician of any sort, much less a surgeon, much less a neurosurgeon, um, particularly in spine when, you know, symptoms can be so nebulous. And uh, as I, I heard you say this in pre-op one day, probably six years ago now, and I constantly quote it, you know, it's the spine, it's mysterious. Let's just fix the problem. Um, <laughs> well, you I know, it's funny, JP, yeah. in my talk about uh, white neurosurgeons and spine surgeons, Fine. The answer I give is exactly what you said. You're so smart. It's that you have to hold. Yeah. You have to learn that. 
And I love that. I love the the intellectual puzzle of it. I love the intuitive side of it. And I love establishing rapport with people like that. And there, you know, many people are kind of primed to open up to you. You're in the doctor-patient relationship. You're in a setting. They came in to tell someone about a problem. So they want to open up. But some people, they want to tell you about X problem that they came in to tell you about. And they might not even know what's really going on behind that. Or, you know, someone made them come in or someone brought them in and they don't want to open up to you about it. And I, I love the experience and sometimes the challenge of establishing rapport with another human and really trying to get that, crack that nut, you know, like get, get them to open up and figure out what's really going on, whether or not, and as you said in your clinic, it, it doesn't always result in a surgery. And for, you know, a neurosurgery resident, probably three quarters of our consults don't even have neurosurgical pathology, much less something operative. So it almost never results in an actual surgery, but it's still fun for me, at least, and, and pleasant on a human level to establish that rapid but deep rapport with somebody uh, and help them figure out what's going on, even if it's not a problem that, you know, falls within our profession. So JP, tell me what your resolution is. Have you made one yet? You've got another day to figure it out. But you haven't. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought about it before getting on with you here. And I think that, uh, similarly, a, you know, a workplace professional resolution, as you said, I'm getting toward the end of residency. I have a very good sense of what I want to do with my life and my career. And, just like going from college to medical school to residency fellowship and, and so on, everything becomes more narrow and we become more focused and more precise, which is good in a sense, if you want to be a specialist and you want to have a focus. Um, but now that I'm toward the end of residency, a lot of my friends who have graduated in the past few years, I've seen them and, and heard them talk about, oh, this might be the last time I take out a meningioma. Or somebody who's going into, you know, skull-based vascular world, oh, this might be the last time I do a, an ACDF. And so as I approach the senior tail end years of my residency, and particularly this year, um, I'm going to make an overt effort to find more joy and put more focus on the things that I'm not actually interested in and the things that I know I'm not going to be doing for a living. Because um, I think even, you know, in residency, you read up more on the stuff that you're interested in. You read more journal papers and the stuff you're interested in, and you gravitate toward covering the cases that are the cases you think you'll be doing for the rest of your year of your career. And so I'm going to make an effort this year to branch out in my professional reading and and read stuff outside of what I normally do. And try to gravitate more towards the cases I know I'm not going to be doing for the rest of my life because I'm not going to do them for the rest of my life. And anything on a technical level is fun if you pay it the respect to take it seriously and really dive in head first. So that's what I'm going to do for 2024. Fantastic. That's a great resolution. And I look forward to all of our listeners sharing with us, you know, in 2024, their thoughts and ideas. And we have a lot of cool plans for the next year. Um, I want to thank all of our guests over 2023, all of our listeners, and JP, especially you for making 
podcast. Right back at you, Dr. Wang. It is, uh, it's been a real pleasure continuing to do this with you. It's been a great year um, for us and, and obviously for the show. Uh, I echo your thanks to our guests, to our listeners. We, we've been hearing from a lot of listeners recently um, with our discussions about the interview process this winter and uh, some of our recent content about healthcare economics and the business side of things. So please keep writing to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. If you have any resolutions for 2024, whether in your personal life or at work that you'd like to share with us and maybe share with the rest of the audience, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll read them out on a future episode. So you have, uh, so you've planted a flag in the sand and we can call you out if you don't do it a year from now. But it's, uh, it's helpful sometimes to say you're going to do something in public because then you, you feel accountable. But uh, otherwise, uh, you can reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Dr. Wang, our guests, our listeners, thank you for a phenomenal year, and we'll see you in 2024. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.